Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. This is Matt Russell, and today I am joined by Jacob Donnelly, founder at a media operator and publisher from The Morning Brew. Now, Jacob had a podcast that is several years old now that actually allowed me to encounter many of the guests that you've since heard on Making Media. So Jacob has long been involved in the media space, long been interested in the ideas about building a sustainable media company. And that's what led him to launch a media operator. It's a community that I've actually joined myself recently. And I can speak highly to the caliber of people within that community, the conversations that are being had within the community. So as you can imagine, both managing that type of community, but also studying a lot of what's going on in the media market made for an excellent guest. We cover a lot of different things that Jacob has direct experience with, mainly events to kick off. Very, very popular right now in the media market. Then we get into some of the dynamics of launching new verticals, the idea of what B2B media actually is, and then who Jacob is watching most closely uh, that's operating in the media market today. So a wide-ranging conversation, someone that I learned a lot from, and I hope you do as well. All right, Jacob, we started the conversation prior to hitting record. We decided we better stop having a conversation off mic and turn it on mic. Thank you for joining me. I have a long list of topics that we can hit on. And given you operate, you take views on things, you write, you're the perfect person to jump around here. I wanted to start out on events. You have a big event coming up, one I will attend. And I'm not somebody who attends many conferences. So The AMO Summit, a media operator summit, is coming in the next few weeks. Events are incredibly hot right now in media. I would say B2B media was in vogue over the past year and a half, two years. Events seem to be really taking the torch or at least running side by side with B2B media. And I just want to start out when you're planning this as you've gone about having your first specific event, what's been the experience like? And maybe just share some of your views in terms of what events mean to media. Events are interesting in that they have historically been the thing that everyone pays attention to. And it's only because of COVID that people forget that. But if you look in, I think it's late 2019 or very, very early 2020, Informa sold a bunch of their digital assets off because they weren't making as much money as their events business. And so they were like, you know what? Let's sell off the digital assets. We don't need that. Let's just focus on events. And then this thing called the pandemic came along and they were like, oh, wait a second. That's a horrible idea. Right. And then they went off and bought my friend's business, uh, Industry Dive. So events have always been, especially the big trade shows, right? Those things are money makers. Events have always been where everyone wants to play. 
It's only been the pandemic that changes it. When you think about the economic equation of an event, I think it's important because the first thing that people think about is, oh, okay, there's ticket sales. But there's a whole other component to this in terms of sponsorships and what else can go into it. So when you think about an event, what would you think about as the economic equation for B2B event? I think it depends on the type of event, right? If you're playing with trade shows, you might be charging less for tickets, but making up for it on the massive floor booths that you're selling. The guy who is helping me with my event, he has done some massive trade shows in his career. We're talking taking over entire convention centers. Sponsors are building double-decker exhibits where you actually can go upstairs and take meetings. We're talking extremely crazy things. Those things, they're monsters. And they sell it by the square foot. It's literally like you're selling space. And then the sponsor or the exhibitor is responsible for then the build-out. I've done a couple of trade shows when I was at Coindesk. For us, it always came down to about 60% ticket sales, 40% exhibit, maybe 55, 45, depending on the year. And always what happened there is we knew because we were the biggest event that we could get away with charging really high ticket prices on top of really high sponsorship prices. When you are the number one product, which we were the number one product, you can get away with that. I mean, our average ticket price, I think was $1,400, but we were talking for three, four, five, 8,000 people, depending on the year. So you can start to see where the math really starts to play out there. So that was really great. For a lot of other trade shows, though, they might not charge anything for the ticket, right? They might let you in on the show floor. And the reason is because they need to get people to actually go to the sponsor booths to make the money. When I think about for my event, my hope is I want my sponsorships to cover the cost. And then I want my ticket sales to be the margin. I was having a conversation with another operator a couple weeks ago. He looks at the inverse. You want your costs covered by ticket sales, and then the sponsorship is your margin. At least historically, the big shows, they've seen margins in the 40% range. You can certainly do better. We'll see what the AMO Summit comes at. I think I might actually be able to beat that. But again, it's a niche, smaller event. It's on an operation that requires unions, which is big here in New York City. We'll see. But it really just depends on the structure of the event. Yeah, I was going to say 40% in New York. Being able to hit industry margins while doing it in New York is impressive. Well, that's why Vegas is so great though, right? Everyone goes to Vegas. Three reasons. One, it's cheap as hell. Two, there are no union fees and all that. And three, it's got a lot of lift in that every major city flies there. And so it's really easy to get people there. And plus, it's Vegas. The hotels are willing to do you a big deal because they think, okay, you get people there, they're going to gamble. And that's where they make their money. They have an incredible business model that tends to work in their favor. And that is why a lot of advertising dollars have gone into the sports podcasting world. And a lot of big deals have happened on the back of that. You made a comment before about you previously having the best event and being able to charge high prices on both sides of the equation. What makes something the best event? So Coindesk at the time was the strongest brand, right? Had the best reporters, had the best sourcing. Our price pages were the best. Our traffic numbers were the highest. Our brand was the strongest. And so then when we rolled out Consensus, our events brand was a great product, super high quality attendees. We had City as our first title sponsor, Citibank. Now we're moving out of crypto. Now we're bringing in bigger brands, Deloitte, right? We brought a level of professionalism to the crypto events space. And that I think is what gave us that position. And so once we had that, we just put on the best event. Our content was great. Our moderating was great. Our events team is two people, Boards and Dasha, who are now at Masari. Like they're still to this day the best operators in crypto events. They just know it and they just put on great events. And so we had the brand and people wanted to be there and that's it. In events and really with anything, any media and probably anything, period, being number one really matters. The branding, I think, makes a ton of sense there. And you know 
if you start at that point where you have that amount of traffic, you know the audience that you have. I was curious what the chicken and egg equation was in terms of sponsors and ticket sales, but I think it really starts actually way before that in terms of the actual brand itself launching the event. And if that brand starts with some prestige and pedigree, it certainly helps the cause. We went through this interesting period where virtual events were a thing. Is there any place in terms of the economic model of media where virtual events are a portion or a legitimate segment of business? I think it depends on how you define virtual events, right? At Morning Brew, we have a very healthy, quote unquote, virtual event business. What we're doing is really just virtual fireside chats where one of our reporters will interview somebody at a company or whatever, purely editorial content. We get them sponsored. And it's a great business. Now, I think when people say virtual events, what they really mean is a half day virtual event, a full day thing where it's multiple sessions of content and all that. We did that at Coindesk, right? Because our consensus 2020 was going to be in May. In two months, we had to completely pivot from a, we were projecting 6,000 attendees in person. We had taken over the Hilton Midtown. It was going to be a thing. And we had to completely pivot. The engagement just wasn't there. People watched, right? We certainly had people watching, but the engagement just wasn't there. It's hard to get people to sit and watch content. The only way to really do that well is you've got to figure out how to get engagement within the content. You almost need live community managers that are engaging with people. It's just, I think it's hard. Yeah. There's a reason why you hear some live podcasts or live YouTubes and they say, let's ask the chat. Trying to bring people in and make it feel like it's a conversation. At Morning Brew, when you do the fireside chats, are those mostly consumed live or is there a lot of after the fact consumption as well? Yeah. So we'll get a thousand people, 1500 people to register for one of these. And they're great for us because we're capturing a lot of first party data. And then we'll have a 40 or 50% show up rate. And we'll keep the people for a half hour. But if we tried to do it for two hours, people just get fatigued, right? They just get fatigued. Now, I do think that the VOD component, right? Or the archive where people can go look at it asynchronous. I think that's interesting, right? I'm going to do that with the AMO summit, right? I'm recording everything. And then I'll take that footage and I'll cut it up and I'll probably sell it on AMO for some premium price. Not the full price of a ticket, but not nothing because otherwise, why would anyone come? So yeah, I think that there's definitely value in the content. I have struggled and maybe it's just my own bias because I can't sit still. I struggle with the multi-hours of virtual content. No, I'm with you. I haven't had too many people tell me that they are real gung-ho on that model. When you think about events, and I am interested in the idea of M&A in these events, and just comparing it to every other business model that's out there. You have advertising, which can be very cyclical. Year to year, you can have crazy swings in terms of what retention rate looks like. Obviously, subscription, such a beautiful business model, and tends to be a little bit stickier. With events, I have a tough time modeling out in my own head what that looks like from year to year. I talked to somebody recently and they said, we generally try to have 50% same attendees coming back the next year and then replace them with 50% new. That's the right mix where you have some culture carriers coming back. They've experienced it before and then fresh faces in the crowd. Do you have a general sense or general model for that and thinking about what makes an event actual sustainable into the future? We didn't have the greatest retention at Coindesk. But that was because we were in such a volatile industry. It's really hard. I'd actually have to dig into and talk to some other event operators and see what they have. I do know, though, that when we go back to this concept of like the top event, it starts to become a part of your annual planning. My friends over at Omida, they do an event every year. 
I think it's in May this year. I think this is the seventh year they're doing it. And look, it's a client event, right? Like they bring their clients there. It's a good opportunity to network and stuff. But now at this point, a lot of the bigger companies that go there, they bring like 25 people because Chicago, and they bring 25 people, 20, 15, 10 people, because it's like an opportunity for like a company retreat almost, especially post COVID. We're all going to come together now. We're going to come together and learn some stuff and get together. So it's hard to say. I think the more mature the event brand is and the more mature the industry is, those numbers will be higher. But look, I also know that there are some events that they have next year's show floor sold out within weeks of this year's event being done. There's one story I know, and I won't say which company it was, where they will literally walk around the show floor the last day with clipboards saying, here is your contract for renewal for next year. If you would like this space, you have until the end of the day. We're talking extreme. And they're almost sold out almost immediately because if you have done this thing and you know this is the event you're going to be at next year, why would you not? And why would you want to give up the premium space that you've fought tooth and nail to get to? Again, this goes back to this concept of the top event. If you're number one, you've got a ton of power. Yeah, there's so many interesting dynamics to it. I had the pleasure of being at Can Lion with my wife, who's in the traditional ad space, advertising space. And I was like coming from the finance world where most of our conferences happen in stodgy old hotels where the beds are taken out. You put a few conference tables in there and meet with people all day and you don't see sunlight. I was like, this is unbelievable. And somebody's been doing it right over here. And that one has quite a legacy in the industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, just to be clear, people will do anything to get to Con Lion. I feel like they would even stay in a bad job just to know they get to go there for a week on a company dime. Forget putting a booth together. You rent yachts. And that was also peak of the peak when we were there. So I was like, this is unbelievable. It will be back in a couple more years. It's chaos. I thought it was interesting within the AMO group, somebody put in an M&A report for media. And in that report, it mentioned events were the biggest segment of media in terms of acquisitions over the past year. And made a lot of sense just in terms of when I thought about what I had been hearing about, that would be the target. But when you think about the integration of events businesses into broader pies, it's one thing to just buy another publication or someone who creates various content to buy an events business. When you think about that consolidation into businesses, does it make sense that that continues? As long as there are good assets to buy, I think that events are always going to be something that are highly sought after because they are very good cash flow businesses. You tend to get your cash before your bills are due. That Coindesk, for example, if you had not paid your bill, your space was not available to you. Show up all you want, you're not going to get your stuff. You had to prepay. And so from a cash flow perspective, that was a nice position for us to be in. Are you implying that other pieces of media like advertising, maybe that isn't always the case with the cash flow? You know what you're running, and I know what we run, especially when the economy gets a little bit tougher. Net 30 turns into net 45. Net 45 turns into net 90. I mean, there are some big agencies that pay net 180. How do you run a business at net 180? Now, again, all of this boils back down to being number one. Consensus, we got away with demanding upfront payment. We also required advertisers to pay upfront. Maybe we couldn't do that if you were number two or number three. So I was in a privileged position to be marketing an event that was the top event. It was certainly a privileged position. Events have always been very good cash businesses. And so therefore, they are highly sought after. I don't think that will disappear so long as there are good assets to buy. right? But in that same report, that's Collingwood's report, it talked about the fact that only the number one brands and industries are getting purchased. Number two, there was almost no deal activity for anyone who was not the top in their industry. Yeah, that's probably the bigger takeaway, which is a very good point. Interesting events. Very interesting to me. Your point on 
cash dynamics make a lot of sense where that can be more the norm in that space versus in advertising where we see it ourselves. We demand these things. But you know, if you want to work with agencies, it's going to be a completely different ballgame. And we avoid working with agencies, but they control a big pool of money. So it's really interesting how the ecosystem works. And that segment of the business is interesting. I want to pivot a little bit into launching new verticals within media. It's something that you have a lot of experience doing. And if you could just walk through the playbook of how you go about launching a new vertical, and I think this mostly applies to your experience with Morning Brew, but just lay out what's the playbook when you start at day one? What does that look like? Our professional business is seven publications, and I've launched four of those. And the framework that I laid out when I joined three years ago was, there's basically three questions we're going to ask ourselves. The first is, we're looking at industry. Let's say we launched HR. So is there a story to tell? We need to know there's a story to tell because that is how we know there's going to be stuff to write. If there's nothing to write about, it's going to be a very boring publication. And so is there a story to tell? And typically, the way you know there's a story to tell, if there's a lot of change happening, a lot of change, another word for that is disruption or anything like that. When that is occurring, there's stuff to write about. That is good. So we look, is there a story to tell? Second thing we look at, is there an audience? Now, we look at that two ways. One, because we're at part of Morning Brew, does the daily have an audience? that we know would be interested. So we had done a bunch of surveys and we knew that we had a certain percentage of the daily audience worked in HR. That's great. That means that we could promote directly to them and get a nice chunk. Most of your listeners are not going to be blessed with the daily newsletter backing them up. And so the way that you want to do that instead is I look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics to see, is this job function or the job function within this industry, are they growing? If it's not, well, that's probably not a great place to play unless there's so much going on in step one, and there's already a mature audience. I look at the growth of those job functions in the case of HR or the industry, and what are the job functions within those industries. And so that's the second. And the third is, are there a lot of companies that are sponsoring? And so I actually look to see if there are other media companies that are already covering this to see what they've got, right? If there's a massive trade show or a massive media company already covering this, I look at that and I go, okay, there's an opportunity there. And if there's a lot of advertising demand, at least in my case, because we're an ad business, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. There's a lot of companies who want to get in front of this audience. And so those are the three steps, right? Is there a story to tell? If there's disruption, okay, great. Is there an audience? Okay, cool. We know this audience is growing. We know that there are sufficient people. We can do research on LinkedIn. We can look at the largest companies. How many people do they have, et cetera, et cetera. Three, we then look and see how many companies are potential sponsors. Now, interestingly enough, the first question, is there a story? And the third question, is there sponsors, are actually linked because... If there's a story, it's because there's disruption. If there's disruption, there's likely capital investment. If there's capital investment, that means sponsors want to play. So that's what we look for, is those three things. Now, that's professional publication, right? That's B2B. If you're playing a consumer, it's different, right? But at least in the professional world, that's how I assess it, right? And look, you can go far with that. On that third point, on the existing trade show or existing sponsors, just comparing that to events where it's a little bit of a winner-take-all market where that number one leader is capturing a substantial amount of the economics in the ecosystem. Is there a point where you think, okay, this is too crowded, there's too much competition in this space? Or would you rather go in and disrupt it? You do have a brand, which I would say is different than old incumbents and stodgy incumbents. So how do you think about competition when it comes to launching new verticals? I think that competition is validation. So our executive editor at Morning Brew on the professional side, he in his interview, pitched me on launching Cannabis Brew. And every quarter, he reminds me that we should do Cannabis Brew. 
And every quarter, I tell him that we're not going to do cannabis brew until the federal government recognizes it. And even then, I don't really want to get into it until I know that there's somebody else legitimate who's actually building in there. Because if you really think about it, all media is, is an execution game. There's no original idea. None of these business models are unique. My event structure is not unique. We are unoriginal people. We're just good at executing, right? And so my belief is that if somebody else has validated this and has actually survived, if I believe that I can do better, we can do better storytelling, we can do better workflows from an audience development perspective and from a revenue operations perspective and from a sales perspective, and I believe that we can do that, I'll go play. I will figure out my angle to become number one, right? Perhaps it's a sub niche within that. If you're playing in retail, for example, retail is very broad and we have retail brew. It's very broad. We're working on getting finer with our audience segments. Maybe within that, I'll just go to DTC or maybe within that, I'll just go to big store and I'll just crush that, right? And become the leader in big store and then expand into other things. So I'm not really afraid of competition just because A, you said before, right? Like the internet's massive. So many people out there. And two, People get complacent when they're number one. They assume that because they're number one, they're going to stay number one. And brand really helps. You can definitely live on that for longer than being number two, but I'm not really afraid of competition. When you identify a new vertical, what does the timeline look like in terms of rollout from, okay, idea for healthcare or retail or something else? Now we're going to make this happen. What does that actually look like? At Morning Brew, it's five months. Because you got to imagine we got to get hiring. We've got to get our sales materials together. We have to get our new publication stuff spun up and all that. And we're a company. We're 200 people. So now multiple priorities. Got to make sure the product team is aligned on how this fits into their priorities. When we launch, right? I want there to be... We have an editor and we have at least two reporters, right? Because that at least means that we're going to get the quantity of content I want from the start. Now, we are newsletter-based originally. So there's only so much content you can put into a newsletter before it gets clipped and just becomes too long. That's how we do it. But then it's like, all right, how do we get the ad serving to feed into the new newsletter? How do we do all this other stuff? How do we get out to partners and let them know that this exists? So could we do it faster? Absolutely. Again, you can launch a newsletter in a weekend. But because we know that we're going to be able to monetize it so much faster, thanks to the fact that we have that daily newsletter that gives us the start of an audience... I can put a little bit more cash investment into it up front, therefore hire a little bit more. That's an advantage. If you talk to some other people who have expanded into new verticals, they expect it to be an investment for two and a half years before they're actually profitable. And you just got to be comfortable with that. And I think that where a lot of media companies might struggle is they just don't have a real intimate understanding of their numbers. I just watched it. This really great panel discussion, I guess it was more of a keynote at one of the Omida events, the CEO of Arkansas Business his name is Mitch. He gave a presentation on the numbers that they track. And one of the numbers that they track is the percent of salary to revenue. And by salary, I mean their salaries, benefits, 401ks, all of that. And he goes, we look for it to be about 40%. We want 40% of our cost to be people. He goes, if we find that it's 50%, we've overinvested, right? We have hired faster than we are selling this stuff. If we find that it's 30%, right? Therefore, you're way more profitable. He goes, we are likely beating the crap out of our current team and not investing enough. The investment, it's the most important thing for any business. It's just a value creation beyond what the stable state business does. And I felt like over the past couple of years, we've been cautious about making some investments into things like video or just other multimedia opportunities because 
yes, they might result in views, but there was no obvious translation into dollars. Most of it was margin negative, which isn't always a bad thing. But there were a lot of things where the investment opportunity was never clear. It was much more of a vanity investment than an actual business investment. So it's been an interesting thing. And you have your anchor cash cows, and you want them to be able to fund more opportunities, figuring out what those right opportunities are, and then being willing to stick with them if it takes a long time for them to play out is always the tricky balance. I think the hard thing there is when you start to leave your core competency. Our professional business has done very well because it is our core competency. We already had the best newsletter on the planet with the daily newsletter. We had already spun up Tech Brew at the time, Emerging Tech Brew. We already had Marketing Brew and Retail Brew. So when I came in and professionalized this team, I've had a very blessed career. I was already operating from a position of strength. And so expanding into four more verticals, we launched three last year. We were doing them overlapping each other, the planning process, because we knew that we could do that, right? It was not hard. We had built the infrastructure. Where it gets complicated is when you start to leave your core competency. You go, oh, we're going to expand into paid content. Do you have any business playing in there yet? Do you have the infrastructure? Do you know how to do the marketing for that? Do you have the customer service support? Are you prepared for that? A lot of media companies moved into audio. Podcasts are going to save the day. Media are the biggest dog chasing a squirrel. It's all we do. It's just a shiny object. So podcasts, but did you have the core competency to do that? Do you have the studios? Are you ready for that? Oh, or you want to make the capital investment for that? So if you said to me, hey, I'm going to put $100,000 and launch a new show, I think you'll be successful. Why? Because that's what you do. If you tell me you're going to go drop $3 million on a massive O'Shaughnessy trade show, probably going to tell you you're crazy because you've never done that. And so maybe don't go crazy. Or if you're going to go crazy, understand that you might lose money the first year. And that happens also with events. Is that yes, you might lose money in the beginning. It's about what your core competency is. That's the thing. And I feel very comfortable investing aggressively in what we know. I get nervous and we should get nervous and we should really be intentional when we try to invest in things you don't know. Then hubris comes into play where you think, well, because we're so good at A, obviously going to be good at B. And that's just not the case. Yeah, there's a graveyard full of businesses that have made that mistake before. On verticals, when you launch into new industries, sometimes you get industries where they can be booming in terms of the various sponsors that are out there, but it can be somewhat consolidated. And you run into this issue of exclusivity in terms of what they're asking for. But you also run into the issue of, well, how many different XYZ services can we have sponsoring us? And does there get some mixed signals here if we're just switching it every month? How do you deal with things like that? Exclusivity? I don't like exclusivity personally, especially in B2B. My biggest advertisers for AMO are Omida, which is a marketing automation, CDP workflow. Like They are an all-in-one tool that really great for media companies. And Blueconic, which is a CDP, which means Blueconic and Omida are direct competitors. If I agreed to do an exclusivity with either of them, I would be cutting off my second biggest partner. How is that in my best interest? Now you could say, well, as long as I cover the amount of money that they were going to spend, that's fine. Except the issue is that, sure, this year, that's great. But what happens if next year, one of them has a problem and they have to cut their budget? What if my marketing contact, who I've got a good relationship with and trusts the process, gets fired or quits? Now I got to go warm up a new relationship. So they say, you know what? We're actually going to go back to a fifth of what we spent. When I got to go back to the other partner and say, hey, do you want to come back? And they're like, no, we haven't worked with you. Why would we want to work with you now? So I don't like exclusivity. Now, some partners want it and some partners will pay for it. And sometimes you do have to do it. Sales teams love it. 
because they get their money now. So it all depends on who's in control. If your sales team is in control, then yeah, they're going to love you. You want exclusivity? You want to pay me a 40% premium for exclusivity? You bet, because I'm going to get my commission now. As the operator, I don't like exclusivity because that is revenue concentration. And that scares me. The idea that you're getting paid for something, which is paid to do something, run the sponsorship, but you're also getting paid to not do something. And I think that could get missed sometimes in terms of what it restricts you from doing. And that happens in all different forms of media. I heard this great conversation about somebody who considers themselves talent. And they differentiate when they think they own something like a production company versus when they're hired as talent. And they make very sure in whatever agreements that they have, their talent agreements, it's not restrictive as to them going on this show or that show. So it's something I hadn't had to think about a lot, but especially over the past couple of years has come more into play. Yeah. And look, if you're going to do an exclusive, right, you just have to make sure you're paid for it. When Call Her Daddy left Barstool and went to Spotify, right? She had to lock her show down to just Spotify. She got paid for it though. She made a lot of money to make that move. And Joe Rogan did the same thing, right? I mean, I remember seeing people who were like, this is a horrible idea for Joe Rogan. You're going to shrink your audience. And I was like, people, do you know how much money this is? If someone wants to make me write uh, AMO twice a week on a notepad and you're going to give me $100 million, love it. Let's go. It just depends. But in B2B, it's so hard because you're dealing with an inherently smaller number of potential partners. And so if you start to cut off categories, yeah, it's fine this year. But what about next year? What about the year after? You got to be very intentional. You might say, okay, you can be category sponsorship in this product. But if I go do an event, damn well bet I'm going to call up that other partner and say, do you want to be there? Because that's different. You got to be very intentional with that. But be clear, right? Don't bury it in the contract and then come back to them. The reality is people forget media is a people business. It's all about relationships. And so you got to be honest from the get-go and be like, listen, fine, you will be the exclusive sponsor in the newsletter. I will not pull that other partner in the newsletter in 2023. But I'm also doing an event. They will be there. It's communication. When you are launching new verticals, when do those sponsors get signed up? Are you getting sponsorship deals oftentimes before the launch of the first issuance? It depends. With HR Brew, we went on one sales call with JustWorks, had a great conversation with them. I told them I'd love them to be our launch sponsor. And they became our launch sponsor and covered a lot of the initial costs of launching. And I think we delivered a great campaign for them. I don't recall having one for IT Brew. We did have one for Healthcare Brew. It depends. We like to make that a possibility because that even more de-risks our investment. So if we can, great, but it's not killing us if we don't. Does the sales team ever drive product in that sense where they're having a conversation with a potential sponsor and they say, could we create a new vertical for you? I'll listen, but I very rarely will do it. The only way I'm going to launch a new vertical is if I think that there are dozens and really more like 100 plus companies that are going to want to advertise in there. Now, if a massive company, if Google came to us and said, here's $5 million, let's go do something. All right. We can do that. But the important thing to understand is if you're going to do that, you have to understand that money is only there until that agreement is done, right? And this is another mistake media made. Facebook would come to a BuzzFeed and say, we're going to give you $2 million every year for three years to create content on our our platform. Great. It's $2 million. I'm going to go staff up. I'm going to go create a bunch of content. And then at the beginning of year four, Facebook says, we're not giving you any more money. Suddenly you have all this cost. You're not getting the money. The business didn't work. And so what do you have to do? You have to fire people. I just don't like that model. If you're going to take someone's check, especially to launch something new, you need to be prepared that you're never going to get that check again. If you're going to do it, you better have a plan to actually make it a profitable business 
outside of that funding. Makes sense in terms of who's driving the decisions and making it an internal decision versus an external decision. But you can obviously use your brain in terms of what the right opportunity sets are. When you think about where we go from here, you at Morning Brew are launching a lot of these verticals. They will have a branding associated with them. There is some stuff that comes out that literally just names attached to it. Individuals that are leading the charge for whatever they're creating their institutions. Where do you think that marriage goes over time? Just in terms of, are we going to shift back more to where creators, influencers, whatever we want to call them, are shifting under brand umbrellas again? Or what's the equilibrium for that? I think that these creators are going to become the next media brands. I don't think it's an either or sort of thing. I think it's an evolution. If we step back, 1851, New York Daily Times launches, previous name for the New York Times. It was founded by Henry Jarvis Raymond and George Jones. Creators, if you will. These are people who decide to put out a newspaper. It has now grown into this massive, massive thing. When those guys launched the paper, it was much smaller. They had an editor. They probably had some staff, maybe, but it was a much smaller operation. And so I think it's the same thing here. AMO will not just be the Jacob Show forever. AMO will one day have other writers, right? And therefore, it will turn from a creator-led business into a media company. I think that every creator should at some point think about how do they start to disconnect themselves from the brand a little bit, because at some point, people want to stop. At some point, people want to sell. At some point, people want that capital event where they go, wait a second. Okay, this thing's making a million dollars a year in profit. Someone's offering me six times that. I get $6 million right now. That's seriously de-risking myself. But if I'm the key man, yeah, I've de-risked myself, but I still got to work. So I actually think that we will see brands develop off of the backs of these creators. I don't think it will always just be individual name just running the show forever. I guess there's a evolve or die obviously, with any business. And you're going to have new entrants coming in, especially with low barriers to entry. But at the same time, scaling is incredibly difficult. You can have one great product and think you can do the next thing and it completely fails. Where's the right equilibrium there? I think that as long as you are serving your audience with the information that they need, you are evolving every single day. The reality is with creating a content business is that you are shipping a new product every single day. You have no choice. And so... I think that you can launch a newsletter or launch a podcast or launch whatever you want to do, build an audience with it, create a new piece of content every day or every week or whatever your cadence is, and do that for 50 years. And you will be fine. You might never become a massive media business, right? You may never become Hearst or the Salzburgers or whatever, right? Like that may never be the case, but you will have a business because every single day you're showing up and you're giving your audience and your niche what they need or want. Now, if you are talking about building something to grow. This year, we're going to do a million dollars. And next year, we're going to grow by 20%. And the year after that, and the year after that, and you're talking about continually growing as one day you want to sell or you want to become a roll-up of media assets. Well, then yeah, that's where you really got to get your financial planning right and really understand when you put a dollar in investment in, what are you getting out of it? But because media is such a short time frame, i.e. you produce something and you're just continuously producing, you are by design always evolving. If you had to recommend three businesses that you think are the best businesses to study in terms of media right now, where would you point people to? And it doesn't have to be three. We can shorten the number to, to one or two. But I'm curious, when you who are very tapped into the space or looking at the space, who are you watching most closely? I'm going to take the easy answer here. And I'm going to use the same entrepreneur for two different companies. So there is this guy down in Tennessee, Craig Fowler. You know Craig. 
And I have said this to Craig to his face, and I will say this to Craig when he is on my stage in a few weeks. He is the most audacious media operator today. So he launched a trucking publication, Freight Waves. He had no experience in media whatsoever. Didn't know right, didn't know wrong. His dad owned a trucking company. What did he know about media? He was actually told because he failed with his father. He got fired by his father, which is even crazier. It's wild. Yeah. He launches this media company. He's crushing it. He's growing it. He's got audience. Can't recall which hurricane it was that put freight waves on the map. It had to be a more recent one because it's not that old. So he's building it up. He's got an ad business that's really doing well. He then spins up Sonar, which is his high-priced data subscription business, crushing it, doing really, really well. I love the blend of content and data as businesses because you effectively get to use the data to inform storytelling on your site. And the really nice thing about that is it's basically always on marketing for your high-priced platform. But in the meantime, you are running ads for trucking companies and whoever your advertising base is on the site. And so you are effectively getting to the point where you are making money on your marketing for your platform, aka it's a negative CAC. Negative CACs, they're chef's kiss. That is where you want to be. And so Freight Waves has that. They have a great platform and it's doing well. And I suspect at some point they will have a sale because it's a great, great premium B2B business. Love that business. As I think about what I would love to build in my future, wherever that takes me, Freight Waves, big circle on my metaphorical whiteboard. So let's go zero feet farther from there. Craig also owns Flying Magazine because not only does he want to run one media company, he wants to run two media companies because again, he's audacious. Craig bought Flying Magazine from Bonnier, I don't even know what it was, two years ago, three years ago, because he loves to fly. He loves flying a private plane. And I don't mean one of those massive private jets. I mean, like literally it's him and his son sitting in a small plane. And I guess maybe the rest of the family could be in the back, but it's like tight squeeze, but he likes that. He buys Flying Magazine, great brand. And he does everything that people would tell you not to do. He fires the magazine agencies that sell the magazine. Why? Because he does the economics and goes, wait a second, they're taking all the money. I'm making no money on this. Why would I do this? Well, every other magazine does it because they want to get their scale up so they can sell ads. He's like, screw that. I'm going to fire all of them. The only way to get the magazine is you're going to buy it directly from me. I'm going to reduce the printing from 12 times a year to four times a year. I'm going to 10X the quality of the product. I'm going to increase the price from $10 to $50 or $15 to $50, whatever. Reducing print, increasing quality, increasing price. You ask him two years later, subscription business is doing amazing. Also ran one of the best campaigns ever. Free plane? Yeah. But again, that's audacious. He's giving away a plane? What? You know everyone who's subscribing is his exact target audience. I don't want to fly a private plane. I'm blind in one eye. No way you want me flying a plane. I'm not going to do that. That's perfect for him. Okay, great. Then he's like, wait a second. Why don't I just go buy up every other flying-related publication? I think he's made 26 acquisitions in the past two years. What he has done is he has aggregated the largest concentration of flying enthusiasts and pilots and all of that under one ecosystem, the Flying Media Group. And that media group now, he has core audience data on all of them. He knows what planes they fly. He knows whether they're professionals or hobbyist flyers. He knows what type. He knows it all about them, right? Now he can build product for them. Oh, wait, I know. What do people with planes want to do? They want to sell their planes and buy new ones. Okay, let's build a marketplace. What's one of the hardest things to do, though, to buy a new plane? Oh, I know. Finance it. Let's launch a financing operation. Oh, I know. What do people want to do with their planes? They want to go somewhere. So why don't we build a massive resort in Tennessee? So they're building a runway where you can fly your plane in and stay in an Airbnb-like resort. 
And when you look at that, and you look at the fact that he all he had to do was, I say this as if it was easy, all he had to do was acquire the audience up top. He can then figure out what products they want. And therefore, once you look at that, the ads and the subscription business, who cares? Everything down funnels really where the money is. But he's getting all his return on investment on those ads and subscriptions and then making even more down funnels. So I look at those two businesses. One's on the consumer side. One is on the B2B side run by the same audacious guy in Tennessee. And you just got to have conviction. And really, at the end of the day, the conviction is this. If you know exactly who your audience is and you create unbelievable content for them and only for them, the rest comes together. I love that. We can use that as the closing answer because it's a great closing answer. I had experience with Freight Waves when I was still a research analyst at Goldman and excellent journalist who I think moved out of the journalism space there, but he's still at Freight Waves, JP Hampstead, actually taught me the value of connection to journalists where he would give me information. I would talk to him on background and it was this, wow, this can actually be value add on both sides. And it gave me a positive affiliation with Freight Waves and They are an incredible business and Craig has long been an incredible leader at the top and has a very cool backstory to it. So very neat to see that. And I love that example and the whole story. This has been excellent, Jacob. I really appreciate it. Thank you for building an awesome community that I get to now learn from quite a bit and look forward to more media lessons in the future. Yeah, man. I appreciate the invitation. 